Hello, folks. Thanks for joining the Defiance podcast. I've got a guest today that I've known for over 30 years now. Uh, he's had a fascinating career in technology, and I've gotten to see that career blossom firsthand. Uh, he's invested in multiple of my companies, and we've invested together in, in quite a few others. I've watched his firm, Macedon Technologies, grow from startup to greater than $20 million a year company. So I'm really excited to, to bring his story to everybody. Austin, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, before we dig into technology, investing, starting companies, I've got to know, what are you driving these days? <laughs> All right, that's a good place to start. Um, I've got an old Lamborghini okay. that, as you might guess, is currently in the shop. <laughs> and um, that's fine. Like My expectations were managed really well by 30 years of car magazines about what you get with an old Lamborghini. So my everyday car is actually the uh, Maserati SUV. Oh, wow. That's, that's awesome. Very, very, both very nice cars. Thanks. Of course, you have me here when the Lamborghini's in the shop, so I of can't get to go for a ride with you. And last time you were here, it was pouring, so. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so early in your career, and, and we'll, we'll talk through it, but I want to lead with early in your career, it's pretty safe to say you were a pure tech guy. Oh, right? yeah. Um, stereotypical. Stereotypical. And I, I think you were a developer at Home Depot and then at a consultancy and then at Appian. Yeah. Is, is that correct? So I wouldn't have described you at all as a salesperson, sales manager, or really a, a leader. And, and most people at that age aren't going to have, have those qualities. Something changed when you came to a mentor where, where you and I worked together. Um, can you describe what you took from that experience and maybe talk about the transition from pure tech developer at Home Depot, learning about consulting and selling and leadership and all of those other things and just how that journey worked and kind of how a mentor fit into that overall? Yeah, John, that's a great question. Um, I mean, that was a real coming of age for me, right? Mm -hmm. I, I grew up on video games and then started writing video games and then realized computer science was an actual major, right? So I kind of backed into technology that way and it was just a great fit for, you know, all my, my nerdiness, right? Mm -hmm. And my, uh, you know, lack of social skills and all that fun stuff. And while I was going through all that, I saw you on this kind of parallel journey, right? Where you were reading a lot of econ and mm -hmm. you were learning a lot of business concepts. And and you were also backing into technology, right? Like we mm -hmm. took high school computer science together and it was fun, but that, that wasn't your passion, right? Sure. And then somehow we both kind of ended up in the same place in the, in the world of consulting, right? Technical services. And I think it was at a mentor where I really saw that there was a, a broader world out there and an ability to create your own destiny beyond just writing software, right? And I, I realized I was behind in a lot of skills, right? There was a lot of relationship stuff with clients that had never been on my radar before, right? It was like I, I got to the next level of a video game and realized that uh, it was much tougher than anything I had prepared for, right? And I knew that in order to get to the next level in life, I mm -hmm. needed to, to learn a lot of those business skills and learn, you know, account management and how to staff a team. And ones and zeros had almost nothing to do with it, right? I mm -hmm. mean, who you hire is, is actually much more of a predictor of your success than whether you happen to know the ones and zeros. And, and how you lead them and how you manage absolutely. them. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, you, you got me into a lot of books, whether it was Call Me Ted or, you know, some of the other <laughs> business stuff you were reading at the time about how people went from being executors to running a business to running an empire. And I realized that, you know, getting deeper into ones and zeros was, was a small part of the picture. And I think that's when, you know, I, I got some opportunity at a mentor. I got to run their, uh, their BPM practice. Mm -hmm. 
and I got just exposure to those broader concepts and eventually realized I could go create my own little ecosystem and, and try my hat at this thing called leadership that I had just discovered. It, it's interesting because I think whenever anybody works with talented entrepreneurs and a mantra hat was chock full of those. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there were probably six or seven people who would go on to start their, their own company. Um, and, and just the, or even at the point where I joined, which was when it was eight or nine people. And I'd say by the time we were 30 or 40, seven or eight of those folks have gone on to start, start, yeah. uh, start their own company and, and so, so a couple of exits as well that have, that have happened along the way. But I think people get really inspired by that because when you, it, it's one thing to see a really smart technical person in a university setting or in a big corporate setting, but when you sit down with a real hustler who is always thinking with their head on a swivel, how do I create an opportunity out of this? I don't think, th I think most people can do that. Just a lot of them have never seen it. And, and that's a big part of the reason I started this podcast was to just expose my audience to as many folks who have made the decision like you, like, hey, I'm, I'm a great technical guy. I could go have a wonderful career doing this, but I think it's going to be a lot more rewarding if I figure out how to do it on my own. So, so yeah. thank you for sharing, sharing that. Um, can you, so, so can you give the folks an overview of Macedon, but also of Appian? We haven't really talked much about Appian yet. We did mention that you worked there for a little bit, but can you talk about what Appian is, what they've achieved? kind of where they are in, in their journey, your relationship to Appian, and then what Macedon does? Yeah, sure. I mean, Appian has been a big part of my life for mm -hmm. probably the last 15 years. Um, I worked there when they were a startup. You know, they were an idea that was just starting to execute, and they wanted to build this platform, right, to build enterprise applications that was just very forward-thinking and that mm -hmm. was going to take advantage of trends before anyone knew they were trends. You know, I remember in 2006, their CEO, Matt Calkins, was going to say, it said, all of our software needs to run in the cloud. And, of course, we all went and Googled, what's the cloud, right? Amazon launched in 2006, I believe. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was probably about that same day. <laughs> um, but, you know, they're, they had, had vision and were building this product that I thought um, could, could really take over the world. And, you know, mm -hmm. if you fast forward to where we are 15 years later, they are deployed in, you know, Fortune 500 and even Fortune 10 customers left mm -hmm. and right, a lot of governments. Did um, they IPO? 2000. They IPO'd last year. Okay. Um, and you know, they've been very successful as a public company, mm -hmm. um, but their product continues to get better. And, and they did it taking very little capital along the way, actually, which was really interesting. They used their consulting ability to generate cash and then underwrite their, uh, their own product ideas, basically. Um, which was really cool. It was the first time I'd ever seen that done successfully. Mm -hmm. um, but that yeah, their, cool. their product basically supports digital transformation, right? Which I think of as large enterprises coming into the 21st century and realizing that, you know, as a customer, I judge my choice of airline based on my tech experience, right? If my flight's delayed, do they text me with a link to rebook or do I have to call them and wait in a 30-person line, right? Sure. Like, Everyone is a software company nowadays, and Appian's platform really enables that sort of transformation where you've got you know, a layer of old legacy systems that you still need to get value on, but you need to put updated mobile interfaces on them, and you need some way to access them through the cloud so that users that aren't you know, sitting behind your firewall in your building can actually be productive with the software that's client and employee facing, right? And sure. that's, that's a, a pretty big paradigm shift, and Appian's technology is really enabling that uh, both worldwide and across verticals. It's fascinating to me because they, there's almost no clients that we ran across at Level who didn't have some 
flavor of Appian running to some extent. It, yeah. it really is very ubiquitous software at this point. It is. And I mean, having been there when they were a startup, you know, that's amazing. And mm -hmm. at some point, you know, all these ideas converged, right? The stuff I had learned at Amentra about how a services company runs and what it takes to be successful with an enterprise client that mm -hmm. you're developing software for, I, I realized that, you know, Appian had no dominant partner in their ecosystem. And at the time, they were probably still too small to, you know, this was 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I went to their C-level team and said, I'm going to be that first partner and Appian's going to be all we do. And, you know, 10 years later, they've gone through their IPO and they are really taking over their industry. And we're right there with them, pushing 150 consultants now. Well, that's great. That's great. So, so, so Macedon, that, that Macedon is a consulting company that supports Appian deployments. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, our original actual legal name is Macedon Consulting because I wanted us to be a consulting company. And then I realized that there are a lot of misconceptions out there about what consultants actually do, right? And I realized mm -hmm. that what we do is really build technology solutions for our clients, right? It's not like we take Appian's platform and hit the install button and then walk away. Sure. Appian's platform is more like a language. It's a modern toolkit that lets you harness the, the power of either your legacy systems or your web APIs or really anything that you can connect to and build enterprise-grade applications that solve very complex problems. Mm -hmm. And we're the solvers of those problems. We're the experts at, at using that tool to interact in your environment and do very flexible things, whether it's at, you know, kind of the data orchestration layer or even user interface where you, you might have complex ideas that need to work seamlessly across a web interface and mobile. And we build those things using Appian's platform and language. That's great. And, and at some point, I'm, I'm, I hope the conversation goes towards kind of comparing and contrasting that approach with the level approach, which was much broader and yeah. not, as, not as focused. And I've seen, seen a couple of companies have the, the, the wild success that you're having using, using your strategy. But I do, I, do, I do want to come back to that in a little bit. Cool. So you, you talked about it a little bit. Can you talk a little bit more about the jump from working at Amentra to starting Mastodon? It sounds like, if I recall correctly, you were probably running a 10 or 12 person project in DC at, at the time at Amentra, or maybe you had moved on to another, another client, but you had this aha moment where you said, okay, I, I've learned what I'm gonna learn here. I've got Matt's buy-in on this at this point. You know, what, was there an exact moment where you said, now I'm going and doing it? Or, or was it that moment where, where, where Matt said, yeah, you could be my premier partner? Yeah, you know, it was interesting. Um, Appian's Global Users Conference, which is now called Appian World and is a really big deal, mm -hmm. happened to be around that same time, and I happened to be there as Amentra's rep. Okay. <laughs> and so I got to talk to all of those people, and I kind of got to gauge the market and see that yeah. there was a lot of demand out there, and there was really no one with the skill set to take it at the time. And I just kind of realized that if all I did was staff, you know, the same size teams I was running at Amentra and run the same kinds of projects, that was a lot of opportunity. And if sure. I could just get from zero to that point, you know, that, that looked like the finish line to me to, to get up to, you know, 10 people, right. <laughs> and maybe even have office space. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, at some point as I was talking to people, I just, I, I, that feeling that, you know, I can actually do this just mm -hmm. grew and expanded. And at some point, you know, I started writing up, you know, what I guess you would call a business plan. Mm -hmm. And 
uh, found uh, registered a couple of domain names on GoDaddy, okay. <laughs> none of which wound up being the actual company <laughs> name once I thought about it for a while. Um, but yeah, you know, just went through that process, and mm-hmm. it's um, it's amazing just how much stuff there is out there. You know, I read a bunch of blogs on mm-hmm. how to start your own company, and read a bunch of books, and you know, there are a bunch of details and legal stuff you have to get right. But there are a lot of websites that walk you through it now, and sure. I actually did all that a couple of months before I pulled the trigger and told anyone, you know, because I felt like I had to get all that paperwork out of the way and was worried I might screw it up. And yeah. eventually, time so that's came when to you quit start my day telling job. people. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that call. <laughs> <laughs> I'm you glad a, you did it. You were in Aruba at the time. <laughs> that was, I think we were at a, at a wedding in Fort Lauderdale. Oh, maybe that was so, it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting the things that you, that you remember. I'm, and, and obviously at the time, it probably created a headache for me. <laughs> probably I, did. Actually, I think by that point, I had you out on the West Coast. Yeah, I was kind of trying to do a sales engineer role and yep. try to get West Coast off the ground for a mantra. And it, it kind of was a good time to make a clean break from that sure. perspective too you know that I had just come off of a project and yep. was transitioning into a role that didn't really exist so yep. absolutely why, why not transition to my own so so you in your mind you you were gonna have made it when you got to 10 or 12 people how long oh, do yeah. you recall how long it took you to get to 10 to 12 about two years actually okay but you you went for a year where it was really you and a real small number of people, if I recall. And then you yeah. hit a point where it really started to take off. Is that correct? Yeah. And, you know, some of that is is just our, our model, right, that we do almost all of our hiring right out of college undergrad programs. And so the downside to that is there are only a few very specific times a year that your employees can start working for you, <laughs> corresponding to when they I didn't graduate even think from college. About that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I got three or four my first summer and then um, probably another five or so the summer after that. And... Fortunately, nobody left in the first four years or so, so we were able to you know, awesome. build the team kind of five at a time, and, and that was pretty good growth year over year. Yep. It's funny. We share an accountant, which was probably yeah. part of what made you feel very good about getting that paperwork ready, having someone, because <laughs> yes. I believe your accountant did business with your father Yeah, Ron as, was as my well. dad's accountant. So, yeah. Um, but I remember Ron telling me when we were, we were talking, he's like, have you talked to Austin? And I said, yeah. And he said, man... He has the most loyal employees. I don't think he's lost one yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of course, that's the upside to starting a business in 2009, right? That's it's, true. You've got three or four years options. of no one poaching your employees ahead of you. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, well, well, and so I, I mentioned kind of the distinction between building a laser-focused technology company on one technology yeah. and taking a broader approach. And I think you've hit, we've hit on the first obvious difference so at level our, if you contrast our approach it was we're going to come in and help you do digital transformation but it might it, it might be that we're coming in and helping you out with a design and you don't even know what you're building it might be we're helping you make the business case for something or it might be that we're helping you figure out a new architecture but it, the point is it's we're coming from any angle there was yeah. a bit we were focused in the sense that we're doing digital transformation and we felt like there were a bunch of different components to go into it but the reality for us is our first i don't think we did a college hire until we hit 40 people yeah. so it, and, and and naturally when you're coming from a position of let me help you figure out what you need to figure out you better have helped people figure it out before. yeah experience matters <laughs> in that in that sense yeah. sure sure and the reality is there's I think the big advantage to, to the approach you've taken is that because you know exactly what you're going to be working on, you can develop a much more comprehensive training program. And so people come out of a six or an eight week 
boot camp at Macedon and they're ready to take on real world projects at, at, at level, we maybe could staff somebody out of college after six weeks of, of training with our people. We could maybe put them on as a number five or a number six yeah. on a project. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting, breadth versus depth, mm-hmm. right? And, and there are kind of a couple of aspects to that. There's, you know, the sales strategy of when you have to go tell the world what you do, mm-hmm. do you say we are the best in the world at one thing? Or do you say we have this broad set of experiences, any one of which could help you, but we don't necessarily know which going in, right? Yep. Um, but what we wound up with was kind of exactly what you're talking about, right? And part of that is, especially back in those days, there was no market for Appian developers, right? Like, Mm -hmm. remember, I felt like I had a monopoly on knowledge when I started this company, right? So that means I can't go out into the market and just hire people that already know it, because by definition, there aren't that many of them. So I realized that if I just hired smart people right out of school and taught them, you know, the things that only I knew, yeah, two weeks into that guy's career, he does have a leg up on the competition, sure. right? And I could staff, you know, small teams with me as the project manager in the early days and get, you know, maybe two people on each project under me to be really productive and produce good stuff. And then, of course, I was always quality control too. That's great. That's great. And you also, I think, this is a two-edged sword. I think you're able to command a better rate because you can demonstrate pure technical expertise because you actually have it it's a lot harder if you're selling java developers on a project or if you're selling net developers or node developers and you don't have a way to show that there's an expertise and so i feel yeah. like your your rates for pure tech work were always higher now our approach was but we can drive higher rates for our subject matter experts our domain experts our designers yeah. and, and other things and what we did discover eventually was that when we started leading with business consulting and transitioning that into technology consulting, the tech rates went up because you were, mm-hmm. we were no longer being compared with the cognizance of the world, for instance. Yeah, I mean, obviously having a, a differentiated skill set, whether mm-hmm. it's tech or in other areas, uh, is the way to beat commodity players every time. Um, we had a couple of really interesting economic factors in our favor as all this was unfolding. One of which is, I mean, there are published reports out there that you can go read by Gartner and Forrester and those types that say building an application on Appian is 20 times as fast as building it in Java. Wow. Right? So if you look at the economics of measuring cost versus output, which is what you should measure instead of cost versus input, you'd see that, you know, if, if you were trying to get ditches dug and one guy's holding a shovel and my guy's driving a bulldozer, my guy's hourly rate might be higher, but you would much rather my guy dig in your ditches with a bulldozer, right? Sure. Like asking what they charge by the hour doesn't even matter when one guy can use a tool in a way that gets you 20 times more power, right? Because we might literally be able to do a project in one twentieth number of hours. Sure. So we were able to take advantage of that. We were able to take advantage of, you know, just being better at the technology than a lot of people out there because of, you know, well, our, and it's our an innovative stuff. technology, which for the, yeah. for when it's solving the type of problem it's designed to solve, it is going to be 20 times right. better. It's why they IPO. It, it is. <laughs> and, and it's going to get better than 20 times better. I mean, that's, that's always been Matt's vision. He calls it uh, reverse more, reverse Moore's law, right? Cut the time to build the same application in half every 18 months. Okay. Like that's that, great. Right? Through, you know, better, better software tools. Um, and, and he's lived up to it. Like so far, that tool has just gotten better and better and better every release. And what I love about it is they release quarterly. Mm-hmm. And for someone who is only focused on that one tool, that gives us an incredible advantage because 
our people are motivated to be on the latest and greatest and be cutting edge. And we're updating our wiki every time that new release comes out, right? Mm -hmm. Again, getting back to depth, all we ever talk about is Appian. So when something new with Appian comes out and we embrace and absorb it and our competitors are still three versions behind, great. That lets us go, you know, do sales demos that show off those new capabilities or go mm -hmm. show an existing client how we can modify what they already have to take advantage of those capabilities, right? And yep. so we love being on, you know, the cutting edge of an ever-changing world. Absolutely. When, when did Mastodon get too big for you to manage by yourself? Was it when you're two projects? Because you, you're managing the projects, as you said. Was it yeah. when there were three? Was it four? Or, did, or was it more of an evolution in different time periods where it became unwieldy for you? I think uh, 30 people was the biggest okay. kind of collection of headaches I ever had. Um, there's kind of this evolution, right, where things are fine, and you add two or three people, and things are fine. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, you get past some tipping point, and you say, wow, I need another layer of management because mm -hmm. Either I can't keep my hands on it all or my next two or three, you know, stars can't keep their hands on it all with what I've mm -hmm. delegated to them. And I think we went through that evolution, you know, just like everyone else that, that grows through that size does, because I think by definition, you can't get bigger than that unless you figure it out, sure, right? Sure. At some point, you would start losing customers as fast as you were gaining new ones if you couldn't yeah. manage all the accounts, right? And so we realized, you know, you need levels above project manager, right? Mm -hmm. People who have the broader context and people who know about how to, you know, build your own IP and then get value at multiple customers with it, right? And concepts like that were fine. So you do a lot of that or? Yeah, we do now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether it's at the level of some small component that does something cool with PDFs or something larger, that's, you know, a 60% solution of, of an entire application that then just needs to have some customizations bolted onto it to solve a client's particular version of that problem, right? Yep. As we got bigger, as we had bench, as we could look across our portfolio of clients and find common needs, we did develop a lot of that IP, which was great, not only from a, you know, helps us get a foothold in with clients and deliver value faster standpoint, but it also gave our people on the bench something to work on. Absolutely. That was really valuable training, right? And we've always run our bench projects like real projects with the same agile cadence and a scrum master and a code reviews to, you know, haze people, particularly as they were new things, so that we could get people used to how we built software. And then when you drop them on a client, you know, they're already not only running very fast because they know the tools, but they're running in the right direction and can just keep pace with whatever team and environment you've dropped them into. That's great. That's great. So, so I've often described the process of building, I think, any company, but service companies I have the most experience with. It's a, it really is just like any other process that you're optimizing, as, and especially optimizing as it's changing, you, you address the biggest bottleneck at the moment, yeah, whatever that happens to be. Right? And then all of a sudden you have a new bottleneck and you just, yes. it sounds very reactive, but it actually is a very effective way to, to I think, to, to optimize any system is just what is the biggest bottleneck? Put 100% of my resources into fixing that oh shit, now recruiting's the bottleneck. Yep, <laughs> or, exactly. Or, and, and, and you often find that things, I think you hit on this, that things become bottlenecks that you had solved before, but now you're at just a completely different quantum level yeah. where you're not even, you're, you're solving for the same bottleneck, but it's a very different reason that it's the bottleneck now. Right, so, right. Um, I mean, one of the things I always thought was interesting was like the twin pipelines of sales and recruiting, right? Mm -hmm. If I go sell a bunch of projects, I need people to do them, mm -hmm. right? And if I hire a bunch of people, I need projects for them to do sure. eventually before I run out of money, right? 
and you to, to grow at 100% a year or whatever you're growing year over year, you, you kind of have to have those two in some balance, right, yep. within a, a margin of error, right? Yep. And like you said, you know, you get to the point where it's no longer me picking three schools that I like and going to their career fairs by myself, right? They've got a basketball game I'd like to watch and the career fairs yeah, the, the next exactly. night. So. <laughs> but, you know, then it's scaled to, well, we need to go to 20 career fairs mm -hmm. and we need to have more than one person in each booth, right? Yeah. And we also need an internet presence that helps us recruit. And well, now we need like a recruiting department, right? Oh, and we're processing, you know, 20,000 resumes a year or whatever it yep. is. And it's again, not just me reading through a stack and picking the five I want to hire, yeah, right? Yeah. And then the same thing happened with sales. Obviously at some point it was no longer me doing a lot or even most of the selling, right? I needed a team that could yep. go build a pipeline, go execute on, you know, getting deals closed, getting deals fruitful. Yep. Now I've met, three or four of your top lieutenants and yeah. you've got some top-notch people now when was the first time and and i feel like you think of them as partners in the oh, business absolutely. when was what was the environment like where you decided i need to go find a partner or did you not did you just they just rose to the top naturally or did you ever go actively seek i'm going to find somebody who's going to become a partner in this business i think it was it was more the organic route mm -hmm. where you know i had people that were literally climbing through the ranks of management mm -hmm. faster than I could come up with titles for them. And Good I realized that, you know, if we're going to go scale a business, yep. I need to just give those guys bigger and bigger challenges. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's, it's absolutely worked. And I think probably the year we did four or 5 million was the first time I, you know, gave a couple of those guys stock options and okay. said, you know, we're all going to be in this together for the long haul. That's great. That's great. Yeah. I think, there's a lot of talk about everybody as a shareholder, but I don't think that everybody appreciates it. I think the people who go help you build it, if it's a smaller group and it's more finite, I personally think that that's a more effective way than everybody's going to be a shareholder. Yeah, I mean, at some point it's about who can run the business, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're, you know, if you're running a, a four or five person team, that's great. If you're running, you know, multiple accounts and you have, you know, things escalating to you across multiple levels and you're really juggling, that's the point where you've got a slice of our business under you, right? And that's mm -hmm. the point where we need to scale and have five or 10 or however many of those. And then obviously any layer of management that, like I said, I learned the hard way I needed every time to put above <laughs> them. And, and that's usually where, you know, things like options come into it because those are the people that not only do I not want to lose, but that also I feel like are, are running the business and need to be running it the way I am and mm -hmm. need to be quite literally invested. Yep, absolutely. So you mentioned um, the balance between the bench. And for those who have never worked for a consulting company, when you're not on a project, you're on the bench. Yep. So we like our, our sports references. We do. <laughs> um, and, and really bench management, or as I think of it, logistics is what we called it at yeah. a mentor and level, is one of the things that if companies get right, they do very well. And if they don't do right, they're never going to scale. And many will even implode on themselves because you're constantly balancing. If I go sell a project to a large bank and then they say, okay, great, come staff it with six people and I don't have anybody on the bench. Right. Now I've got to go pull employees from another project. And you can imagine if you're working at a retailer and Jeff is your favorite developer of all time, and he's been there for six months. Jeff might be bored with working on your project. So it sounds great that I'm going to pull Jeff from retailer A and move Jeff to bank B. 
Um, but I've got to have a very difficult conversation with, with the project manager on the retail side. And yes. these, these are all of the things that just, this is the business of consulting that I, I found I could hire a lot of developers at, at level and teach them, okay, this is how you run a consulting business. To me, yeah. that's running a consulting business. I'd love to get, if you've got any war stories you'd like to talk about uh -huh. there, but I'd also like to get your overall theory there of how you balance it. Um, and can you maybe speak to what was the worst bench situation you ever had? Either I'm, I need to hire 12 people tomorrow or, oh, shit, I've got 20% of my workforce sitting down doing yeah. nothing. <laughs> we, we've, we've absolutely had every one of those situations. And everything in between? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. Again, starting at the top from kind of a philosophy perspective, right? Mm -hmm. We want to be the world's foremost experts at Appian. And to do that, we need to be hoarders. Right. Mm -hmm. When we train and create someone who is one of those experts, we don't want that person to hit the street. Right. And we've never yep. laid anyone off because we always think that the market is heading up. And if we have 20 people on the bench, there's going to be a day when we need those 20 people. Mm -hmm. And so far, it's always worked out great. Right. Yeah. And in fact, we take that same leap of faith every summer. Right. We've got 30 or 40 new rookies that come on now mm -hmm. to keep our growth at you know, a reasonable percentage clip as we're over 100 people. And we don't hire based on pipeline. We hire based on finding people throughout the year that we think are going to be great fits. And they come on on the summer, they get trained up. By the end of the fall, they're usually on projects. And by about March, we are dying for more capacity. You yep. can't wait until May comes <laughs> around and somebody graduates from college. Right? Excellent. And, and that's just kind of the cycle. It follows every year. Um, but yeah, I mean, there have been times where, you know, there was an economic event or a, a big federal contract that wound down or something like that. And I guess the, the one of those that sticks out was when we were, I think we were 18 people. And, you know, we had one client decide not to renew at the last minute and one client unexpectedly wind down. And our four summer hires had just started, like kind of all at the same time, right? I think I got a call from you during that. Yeah, I think you might have. And so <laughs> I think we had like 10 of the 18 actually billing. Oh, and of course, that was the quarter I also decided to stop billing and start, you know, delegating and running the business full time. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that created a situation where um, we had a lot of capacity to do bench stuff. Sure. Um, but, you know, we, we grew through it. And by the end of the year, we had everyone on projects again. I, I think that's the most exciting part about getting to the scale where you have. And I think you said you're about 150 people yeah. now. It's, have you sold a project that, where you've been really worried about, oh, how are we going to staff it in the past year? Not in the past year. I know you're selling much bigger deals than yeah. you used to, but you, it, it's such a different game when you have, it's just a critical mass that you hit where, wow, we can staff anything. What's interesting is you run out of people for any given role, right? Like That's you realize, true. oh, we have six people on the bench, but none of them can run a project. Yeah. And if we go sell a, like a three-person project, somebody's got to run that, yeah, right? Yeah. And that's when you that's start the figuring part. out the yeah. juggle or, or who's ready to step up and you yep. know needs a promotion, even if that means you have to do what you were talking about before and pull them off of a, an yep. existing project and, and have some difficult conversations and, and quite frankly, probably give away some free work to make up for it. Sure. Uh, we all like to think that we're just so awesome at coming in and waving waving our hands and saying these aren't the droids you're looking yeah. for but the reality is the free work happens a lot more than we care to admit yeah absolutely <laughs> i mean particularly if it's our decision right if we yeah. say that we need to change staffing 
for whatever reason, you know, we've got to make that up to the client somehow. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what does the team that runs Macedon look like today? How, you know, and that includes you, how, how hands-on are you and, and, and that, and, and when I say running it, managing the logistics, managing the sales processes, managing escalations with customers, maybe handling difficult employees, like what's the yeah. team that, that manages that look like today? So, you know, assume you have any number of projects with a, a lead and a couple people under them, right? Mm -hmm. And those get grouped into what we call programs. And a program could be all the projects at one customer or, you know, a, a couple projects at a smaller customer and a couple projects at three other smaller customers. Mm -hmm. Or it could be vertically targeted, like all of our government stuff rolls up to one program manager, right? Okay. And so then we have this, we have this layer of program managers that each have, you know, their hands in a handful of accounts. Mm -hmm. And they got there by, you know, being absolute rock stars at running individual projects, right? Mm -hmm. So that now they're the escalation point for those project managers that are under them. And is there somebody that runs that program management team then? Yeah, or? so those roll up to directors, okay, right? And so each director has a couple program managers under them. Um, and then there's one director that has all of our architects under him because architects cross projects in, in sure. weird ways. And that wound up being a, a competency that's so depth centered that we wanted it, you know, all to live in one place. Mm -hmm. but other than him, you know, program managers roll up to directors. And so at that point, the director has a, a portfolio of accounts that are divided, you know, kind of by region and vertical. Mm -hmm. um, and directors are, are running the company at that point, right? They're, they're the ones that really need to answer the question when a program manager says, hey, I need two more people on this account and don't know where they're going to come from. It's the director that talks to the other directors and figures out, you know, who from the, the uh, master spreadsheet of staffing logistics <laughs> can, you know, be put on this account. Um, it's not on Appian, the logistics spreadsheet? <laughs> that's one of the few <laughs> things we haven't moved to Appian yet. We do run most of our business on Appian, actually. I've seen it. It's pretty impressive. It's enabled you to have a lot less overhead yeah. than, than you would otherwise to support the level of revenue that, that you've got. So the directors, talk a little bit about that role. Um, do they... If, if they need to escalate, do they go to you or is there a managing director above them or what does that look like? Well, this is another place where they used to come to me and then I realized that we need another level of management. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the directors, they kind of have a, a hybrid role. Everyone's a hybrid of, of multiple things at Macedon, whether mm -hmm. that's that you're, you know, developer, QA and business analyst or your scrum master project lead and database expert, you know, everyone kind of wears multiple hats. We try to keep that as part of our, you know, startup-y culture that we never want to lose. Mm -hmm. So direct Be a day zero company is, is uh, exactly. or day one company as Jeff Bezos calls it. Yeah, yeah. So directors are kind of half sales and half execution, right? Mm -hmm. They've got programs that roll up to them, but they're also the ones that are out there writing proposals and talking to prospects. And, you know, obviously they're the experts on our methodology and how mm -hmm. we deliver and what we can deliver. So they're the ones that get to tell that story. And how many of them are there? Not to... Uh, four. Four, okay. Yeah. Um, so the directors roll up to one vice president, mm -hmm. right? So he's got those handful of direct reports. Um, obviously, he also has sales responsibilities. Um, our center of excellence also rolls up to him. So that's the kind of the director and the architects that are under him. Um, and so he's global vice president of professional services, right? Okay. Whatever yep. it is we have to do for clients is his responsibility. <laughs> and he has, you know, whatever number of people to delegate that to as needed. 
Um, that so, yeah. that role at at level was one of the hardest jobs in the company. Yes. By the way, it's it's yeah. not for the faint of heart. But it's a rewarding job because you get to see more of the company than I would argue anybody else. Yes, for sure. <laughs> but it's it's not without its challenges for sure. Yeah, no, and and so that's Andy, and he's he's mm-hmm. definitely the puppet puppet master over all of our you know, project project execution. Mm-hmm. He reports to Mark, who's our COO, okay. who then also oversees sales, uh, HR, and a department that we call uh, the chief customer officer. Right? Okay. Is that like a client success group? Yeah, a client success success group. Um, And that is, you know, independent of our actual project execution arm. So it's not that you're, you know, going to whoever the highest person you can get a hold of on the grounds boss is and saying, here's why this person is falling short, right? It's that you can come to someone outside of that hierarchy and say, here are some new directions we'd like to stretch our, you know, our relationship with you in. And you can have someone actually strategize about that without it, you know, being about, you know, what's going on on the ground yep. specifically, right? Um, so Tim is my chief customer officer, mm-hmm. and, um, and he's got one director under him, Stacy, who runs um, training, recruiting, and our entire methodology. So our okay. templates, how we do Agile, all of those sorts of things, right? So she's very enablement focused. We, we call it delivery, which I know a lot of companies use as you know their, their term for their group that actually executes projects. But for us, delivery is how we execute projects. So again, she's independent of the actual hierarchy of people doing the work, but she has views into everyone's status reports and things like okay. that and can see things like, well, we have a, a centralized database of risks across the country that we, or across the company that we run on Appian actually. So mm-hmm. everyone does their status reports by putting all of their hours and risks and issues and everything else that you would need into Appian, which then generates the PDF you need to send to the client every week. But then it also gives us behind the scenes great ways of cross-tabbing across projects, what the highest risks are, what risks occur most frequently, and those sorts of things, which then feed back into where we might need to make methodology changes to you know, address those at a different point in the cycle. How long did you go before you realized that you needed that role? Because that's the kind of role that historically I pushed off as long as I could. And then yep. once we had it, I wished I had done it at the beginning and that's exactly what we did Um, it was it was in the last 18 months probably when we got to I don't know 80 or so people Mm -hmm. that you know we realized um, just like you need you know architects that are that technical point of guidance that can span multiple projects you also need to centralize how you run Mm -hmm. projects yep now I remember bringing on our first project manager at level and people grumbling about it. Yeah. And then literally four weeks later, we're trying to hire three more because everybody has had a little taste of this. And they're like, wow, the world runs so much better when somebody who actually knows how to do this stuff is doing it. Yeah, I remember you telling me that. And yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, John finally gave in and hired a project manager. Isn't that yeah. cute? Yeah, because I was know. I was opposed. Yeah. To, I was very opposed to it. And, and, and like so many other things, though, when you get over your ego and you say, you know what, I was wrong. Let me give this a, ch- a shot. You realize, like, wow, the company is way better as a result of this. Yeah, for sure. You know, and I think some of that is, um, you know, I'd seen a model work without that mm-hmm. in, in a previous life at, at sure. Ventra, for example, and thought, well, if it worked for them, it can work for us, too. And 
seeing your experience actually accelerated that for me where, you know, you, you told me you were seeing a lot less fires once you yep. had someone, you know, overseeing methodology and being more proactive about preventing them and those sorts of things, which is another thing that is, is easy to spot at the, we have one project level. Yeah. And then when you have like a bunch of projects going in parallel, it's you impossible. realize it's yeah. nobody's job to even look for that anymore. Yep. Right. And yep. so it became somebody's job. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah. Um, so, so we've talked a little bit about this, but your philosophy is obviously make sure you're the best at Appian in the world. Yeah. Um, then you figured out how to be highly profitable with it. So it feels like the first step was I, w- I want to make money, obviously, but I, I need to be the best in the world. Then you figure out how do I optimize this? And, 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 and we haven't really talked about it, but your margins are, are phenomenal. Nice. Um, and that extreme profitability has allowed you to make bets on growth hires that enable you to push to that next level. Um, is this accurate? And is there anything you'd like to add that we haven't talked about already about that order of operations? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, that that was certainly more accurate. I would say during the middle of our 10 years, um, things were actually fairly easy early on because Mm -hmm. I was actually more self-employed than running a business. Right. And and I could obviously bill at a really high rate because I personally knew Appian really well and could write any sort of code I needed with it and when you're the only person on payroll and you're putting all that money in the bank. Well, it's easy for you to convince people because you wrote the engine. Right. Yeah. I was also a great sales guy for myself. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So we got to put money in the bank, you know, pretty early Mm -hmm. and then use that to to hire people kind of at our own pace, which was great. So we've actually been profitable, you know, since the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we saw kind of a, a peak profitability when we were just running that same model and we were 30 or 40 people and didn't need to add any of this overhead yet. And, and, and for the folks listening, when, when Austin talks about extreme profitability, I, <laughs> I've got a guest coming on in a couple of weeks here who runs an investment bank, and they, they helped Austin out with some strategy work. And he, their bank does a lot of work with a lot of different services yeah. companies. And he said, I did not believe Austin's numbers until he literally opened up the books and showed them to me because nobody runs this profitably. And, and again, I think it's hard to overstate the strategic value of that kind of profitability because you can afford to take advantage of things as they come. Now at level, we took a very different approach, which was let's go raise, let's, let's raise some money. Let's go chase growth. And we were able to grow very fast. But at the same time, you don't have the operational flexibility and you're constantly thinking about raising money in that kind of a model. Whereas someone who says, you know what, I'm committed to these margins, I'm going to make these margins, you, you, you lose flexibility in the one sense that you can't take quite as many risks. But in the long run, you can take far more risks and, and, and keep a 20-person bench when, when things start to head a little bit south because you've got some cushion. So. Yeah, exactly. And um, I remember one of the founders at Appian gave me um, a book by the CEO of Bear Stearns mm-hmm. uh, that was all about this, Memos from the Chairman. Okay. Right? And the, the theory there was basically run your company as efficiently as possible, right? Reuse paper clips in your back office and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And use your money to hire talent when you find it, not when you need it. Yeah. Right? No, because think, someday you'll need it. I think that's great advice. We were talking, we had met a partner at, during the level days and um, very accomplished uh, former CEO of a couple of large consulting companies. He, he, he had come into a new to this company and he said, we're going to stop chasing revenue first. If we chase profits first, then 
the revenue growth will follow. And I, I do think there's something to be said for either model, but it is, it's, it's one of those fascinating decisions that you make strategically when you think about what are we gonna go out there and, and do. And to me, the biggest challenge with raising money and then chasing growth is that you're constantly raising money. Sure. And, and as long as it's up rounds, then that's, that, <laughs> that's fine, but, yes. it's, but, but there's challenges. Do you, are you better served running a company or raising money? And obviously a lot of companies pursue the path of raise money. There wouldn't sure. be this huge VC market if it weren't, weren't the case, but it's, it's one of those things that, that's interesting and, and uh, obviously it's, it's worked very well for you. So. Yeah, it, you know, it, it's been a fun journey and mm -hmm. it's been interesting watching, you know, both the, the revenue and the profit numbers fluctuate over time. Um, mm -hmm. And I remember when I did engage with that bank, you know, they, they had me do, you know, gap audits and some of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And the reason I did that was because I still felt like we were a garage band, right? We were about a eight to $10 million company at the time. And mm -hmm. I, I figured I've got to be doing something wrong, right? There's, there's got to be something that I'm just missing, like big picture, because all I have are developers. We have, we have no other departments in the company. And that, sure. at $10 million, that can't be the right way to run a business anymore. Like it feels like it's working, but I, <laughs> I kind of feel like there's just like something I'm not seeing. Right? Sure. And so I engaged with, you know, Andy and, and he, uh, he just, you know, kind of laid out what he sees at various, you know, professional services firms. And we actually did, you know, make a lot of changes based on that experience. And when okay. we needed overhead, it, at least I had some context for, you know, yeah, this is the kind of thing that Andy told me about a couple years ago that now I finally need someone who does X full time. And, and I understand, like, he told me, you know, what I should have been spending on that person. And I kept saying, well, I think <laughs> I should be spending zero. I, I just don't get it, right? And so now we do have a mature back office. We do have a lot of office space. Sure. Um, we, in the last, you know, two years became an Appian reseller and were able to add a, a big sales team mm -hmm. that can now go out and chase deals for us because we had, you know, some money put in the bank from those early profitability days when I think we kept overhead super low a little longer than maybe we should have gotten away with. Sure. No, well, hindsight's always twenty twenty, <laughs> but it, it, it's worked out well yeah. for sure. Maybe you could speak a little bit to, to just how you think about culture. I was at an event in New York um, that this UK group put on and they had a fascinating presentation, but one of the things they said that really stuck with me is that the only competitive long-term advantage that any company has is their corporate culture. Um, and, and I think that's a profound statement. And the more I reflect on it, the more they're right. And yeah. that's in any business they're saying. In a services business, I think it's even a stronger statement. Sure. Um, and, and you guys have a great culture. Can you maybe talk about how deliberate the culture is, what the thought process is, and maybe just speak to what the culture is that I'm talking about? You know, the, for instance, the, you, you've got a, a little, um, little banner for each college that you've hired from yeah. in the order that you hired them. Yes. So those kind of things build and, and become very important in a company's culture through the years. Yeah, we definitely think that stuff is important. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I've, I've heard similar quotes, like I think it was Peter Drucker who said, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast and sure. stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's absolutely true. And the, the easiest bottom line way to see that it's true is if you can't attract and retain talent, you'll never be great at anything and you'll never scale, mm -hmm. right? Um, particularly in our business, we're literally all we have are people, Yep. right? And so my goal was always attract and retain the best talent. I wanted to go compete with Google for, you know, guys that had 
three nine GPAs at and gals. Chapel Hill and whatever. Yeah, and gals. We actually have quite a lot of female engineers and females in other That's great. management I roles. believe you guys won a diversity award We did a couple recently. years ago. Yeah, yeah. and um, actually I think we have quite a few new women coming on board this summer. That's great. Um, and we've actually had them since we were pretty early. I think Rachel Rader was employee number five. Wow, that's great. Yep. I just wanted to make sure because you've said he a lot, but I, yeah. know, the, I know the truth because yes. I've seen the company. <laughs> yes. Um, but no, culture is really important to us. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I sum it all up as work hard, play hard, right? We're hiring mm -hmm. people who have succeeded at difficult academic institutions, and you don't get that you know, degree and that GPA without having put your nose in a book and studied and built mm -hmm. cool things at one in the morning in the engineering lab, right? Mm -hmm. And we all love geeking out and solving problems, right? And I ask people, like, what's the coolest thing you've ever built? And when did you realize that you wanted to be an engineer, right? And they, yep. they tell me that they just love playing with stuff and tinkering, right? And then eventually that led to software, which is just kind of a more abstract way to do the same thing, right? So I embrace that, you know, if you want people that are going to get best the best results, you need smart people that want to work and want to solve problems and want to be creative, right? But the play hard side is also important. And I always say we're all nerds, right? Like we all have computer science degrees and, and that sort of stuff. Right? Not me, but. <laughs> not you actually, not me either, oddly enough. <laughs> but that's another topic where you and I met in a computer science class and then neither one of us wound up getting computer sure. science degrees. But we both run software companies. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you know, it's, we, we geek out on things like Star Wars movie marathons at the office. Mm -hmm. And um, we've got two kegs on tap at all times in a medical grade refrigerator with a sign on the front that says absolutely not beer. And when the guys came to install the refrigerator, they said, are you doctors? And we just kind of looked at them and said, why would you say that? And they said, well, this is medical grade refrigerating equipment to like super cool body parts. And we were like, no, we're just gonna put kegs in it. Right? That's great. And so we- And we, you built a pretty, I, I, I seem to recall in your office seeing a, a very well thought out patio and outdoor area. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. The, the, I think those little, little touches make people really appreciate the company. Um, yeah, I think so too. And you know, we got a commercial grade grill and we do, we, you know, we grill a bunch of burgers and hot dogs and stuff on Fridays when the weather's nice and stuff like that. That's great. Um, the, the colleges thing is interesting. You know, we, we obviously love colleges. We recruit directly out of them. Right. And so we wound up um, putting a plaque, basically like a five inch by five inch um, plaque of the, each school's logo. That's cool. Across our break room. And I, I think we have probably 50 of them now. And, and, you know, we did it by looking at the roster and the order of order we had hired people in, right? And every now and then we, we get a new one. Um, University of Virginia, obviously, is first. Since was first, away. yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we celebrate that. Um, we themed our entire headquarters after Harry Potter, right? So all the hallways <laughs> are named after streets yep. in the book. And we actually had street signs made in Great Britain with a logo we designed so you're talking about the, the street signs on the buildings yeah. for each of the roads. Yeah, that's yeah, great. So we yeah. have those for e in each hallway. And if you're standing at whatever intersection the leaky cauldron is at in the Harry Potter books, then that's the name of the conference room at that intersection. Oh, in very our cool. Office. Very cool. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Um, before I do, is there anything else about Macedon that, I sh that we should talk about that, that, that we've missed here? Or? Uh, I think we've hit it all pretty well. It's, okay. it's been a wild ride, but it's been a lot of fun. Awesome. So shifting gears from investing in your own company, how many investments have you made in other people's companies through the years here? Um, probably about a dozen. Okay. That's great. Yeah. We're both 
friends with Scott Lane. Yeah, um, Scott's awesome. And you invested in his very successful startup, GrandPad, and I recently interviewed him. Um, and, and we talked a little bit about, you know, he he told me you were his favorite investor, not strategic, because he's got some very, very strategic investors who have written huge checks. Yeah. <laughs> but but he said of everybody who's ever invested in 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 his company or that he's worked with, that, that you were one of his favorites, you know, willing to help, um, willing to be a thought leader, not just calling when you're bored, but like, le- like legitimately interested, but not, not getting in, into, uh, you know, into too many, in, into too many details and then willing to write follow on checks, asking good questions, supporting him when he needs it. Um, what do you think is the biggest mistake that individual investors make? Because there's a lot of shitty individual investors too. Yeah, I think the, the best principle that, that I've heard and the one that I've seen you know, play out well is you're betting on jockeys, not horses, mm-hmm. right? And it's about buying into someone you think is a star yep. that can go execute their idea. Because anyone can show you a 20-slide PowerPoint deck Mm-hmm. about how they're going to be the next Starbucks or Google, right? Or Uber. I, or I don't know Uber. if you've seen their investment pitch, but it was, <laughs> it actually was really good. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Um, and of course, now their stock is public and I wouldn't touch it these days. <laughs> no, it's toxic right <laughs> yeah. now. But, um, you know, I think a lot of people can be coached to put together that deck, right? Mm-hmm. But if you bet on someone who has run companies before or has been a product manager or has, you know, yep. one of one of the startups I invest in, their uh, their president used to be the chief marketing officer at Hooters, right? Which is like a 500 stop mm-hmm. chain, yep. right? which I assume most people have heard of. Well, you don't run across people with that resume every day, right? And when sure. he's out there selling like a consumer product, right? And he can say, I get this industry. I was chief marketing officer for a 500 store chain that carries some weight, right? And when I've got a bet on who's going to go succeed next time, his resume is one I want to bet on, right? Sure. And Scott Lean was the same way. You know, he had done great stuff at a lot of big banks, a lot of fintech, mm-hmm. and those sorts of things. And um, I actually met him when we were both co-investors in a company he used to run. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, Scott is just phenomenal. He's the guy yeah. you want running your startup for sure. Yeah, his success story is so so inspirational. They're, they're doing so well. Um, so... It, but it's a little easier to be a good investor in an extremely well-run company like yes. Grandpad. <laughs> what is the biggest mistake CEOs make with investors, with good investors, not with bad investors? Um, I, I think you have you have an interesting class of CEOs that you've already filtered down to at that point, right? Mm-hmm. And that's CEOs that took outside capital, particularly early. Mm-hmm. And I think my biggest worry always when I give someone money is that they're going to spread it too thin and come back for more too mm-hmm. quickly, right? And that they they got that money easily and therefore they're they're gonna be Santa Claus spending it. Sure. Right. Buying cappuccino machines and not reusing the paper clips in the back <laughs> exactly. office. Exactly. Yes. So I give them that book, right? <laughs> um, but no, I mean I think that's the the biggest, you know, balancing working capital and marketing and product development and all of those sorts of things. Um, and still, tr- still running like a startup, right? Like, I feel like you've got to always run like you have no money. That is very true. I, I think that um, I, I heard that that's the real reason that the Japanese automakers were ultimately so successful is coming out of World War II. 
they had no infrastructure, <laughs> they had no money, a completely decimated country, and they had to invent Kanban, and they had to invent just-in-time, and yeah. they, they, they literally had to reinvent the way that you build cars. Yeah. And, and now you look, and the wealthy uh, German manufacturers and American manufacturers are adopting those same yeah. uh, approaches to building things. I think that scarcity creates the, the, the context for... Uh, some some very good invention. Yeah, they always say uh, necessity is the mother of invention, right? Sure. And I am all out of whiskey, so I'm going to leave uh, you with a question that, that I know you can talk about for a minute. Okay. <laughs> and then I'm going to go grab a bottle for us. Cool. Um, when you think back on why you've done well, not just at Macedon, you've always done well in your career. You, you've had some very good investments that you've made. What are the top three attributes that have served you well when you reflect on that? an interesting question. Um, I think there's a, a diversity of thought that underlies it all, right? And so I, I've always read a lot of books, right? And actually, John, I've gotten a lot of book recommendations from you over the years, and I think I've probably given you a lot too, but I try to read a book a week. And, you know, some of those are about business and some are about sports or history or sci-fi or whatever. Um, but definitely just being intellectually curious and wanting to dive into things and and always learn more and come into the next situation with more context. Um, I've also made plenty of mistakes throughout the course of my life, which... Those are the best teachers, though, Yeah, really. I mean, fortunately, those aren't the, the parts of my resume you chose to highlight in this talk. But truthfully, just trying to learn as much as I could from each mistake or, or from each, you know, borderline success, right? Each, mm -hmm. each single that could have been a double or a triple, right? And say, okay, well, we, we scraped by here, but... What are 10 things we could have done better so that next time we don't lose? You know, I, I was the captain of the debate team in high school. Mm -hmm. um, actually, your brother was my debate partner all those decades ago. And uh, we actually won a couple of state championships back in those days. And, mm -hmm. you know, whenever we lost or had a close win that, you know, we didn't feel good about, but somehow the judge believed an argument we didn't believe ourselves, we would just mercilessly go, you know, replay the debate and say, well, what could we have said differently here? Mm -hmm. What could we have started? Well, let's talk about that better? for a second. Did that come from you and Brian or did that come from Ron Richards, your coach, who we both admire, obviously? <laughs> Ron's, Ron's a really interesting guy. Um, Ron definitely taught me a lot. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I got, um, I got some of my best arguments from him because he saw things from just a completely different perspective than everyone else. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was like almost the, the conspiracy theory perspective, right? But if there's like a not crazy version of that, where like the guy tells you the conspiracy theory and you're like, you know, like if you had told me the world was flat, I wouldn't have believed you. But when you're telling me like, this is what really happens on Wall Street, I, I can't poke too many holes in your story, sure. right? So that was, that was Ron Richards. And I think we got a lot of arguments where we, we would stand up and say something, and the other team would be like, huh, I can't believe you just said that, but I also can't refute it, right? That's a great place to be yeah, in which, a debate. I mean, that was awesome. Or, or in business, right? Like when you're selling something and you can make a pitch that has those characteristics, right? Mm -hmm. And that's when you know that you've got your competition backed into a corner that they don't even know they're in because they're not in the room when you yeah. say that, right? But I think, um, I think the work ethic part of it where Brian and I just did not want to lose ever, 
and you know some of it is is stuff you hear about you know guys like Peyton Manning right who mm-hmm. will put together a, a, a tape of every interception he's thrown in his life and watch every yeah. one of them and or say, Bill Bill and, Belichick is another yeah one Bill famously. Belichick does that now right and yeah. I actually have a funny Belichick story that I'll tell you later okay not that I've ever met him but I used him as an analogy once in a way that I thought was really powerful um, but you know that's that's what I've always heard about work ethic right is that it's not about like how many how many weights did Peyton Manning lift to be like the, the top quarterback in the league, right? Sure. Whatever he was, right? To him, work ethic, and I'm sure he lifted enough, right? But work ethic was that mental game, right? That no one's ever going to out-prepare him and that whenever he sees a situation, he's going to be able to see that path to victory because he's going to know if this is what the defense is throwing at me, this is what their weakness is, right? Mm-hmm. And that was how Brian and I used to prep for every round. And ultimately, I mean, we, we wound up winning times that, we never should have. Sure. Right? It's amazing how that happens. Yeah. Huh? And and I, I try to do the same thing in business. You know, like I said, sales is, is the most obvious example, mm-hmm. right? But trying to convince some recruit to come to your startup instead of going to Google is yeah. actually the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you need to think through what might they say back to me? What yeah. have I heard before? What what resonated that I've said before? And, yeah. You know. Or convincing an employee not to quit or to unquit. <laughs> so what things you learned along the way surprise you the most about business i'm putting you on the spot because that's a very direct question yeah so i think business is an interesting combination of the rational and the irrational okay right and you know we grow up but let let me before before you get into that because i want to hear that definitely what's more natural to you the rational or the irrational i'm a computer scientist without a computer science degree so Actually, that statement alone as a contradiction might tell you that there's no good answer. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, I, I like to think that, you know, as, as someone who was into, you know, the mathematical proofs that underlie computer science. Sure. That if things are rational and add up, that's always easier to process. Yeah, that, that right? seems like things that you, because I, I feel like I'm better at processing the irrational yes. and kind of reacting to crazy things. We get along great. And maybe it's because we, we see two different parts of the world. But yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there have been plenty of times throughout the years that I've called you and said, John, the craziest thing just happened. Like, why <laughs> did this person say this? And, and you were like, oh, yeah, they yeah. were thinking about it this way and you were thinking about it that way. And I'm like, oh, that makes sense now that you said it, right? Yeah, yeah. No, but, I've always admired that about you, the ability to break things down into something very rational. Um, I don't know, for me, sometimes I feel like it's intellectual laziness on my part. But there's also, I've seen people who do it very well and seen the success that they've had of being able to take things and say, this seems completely fucked and irrational, but we're humans, so why are we actually doing this and try to break down why it is? But I think that is more art than science, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting because in in the context of a debate, Mm -hmm. you can just point out that something is irrational sure. and that scores you points, yeah. right? Because who's who's going to vote for it once that's been pointed out? Yeah, but when your right? client is yes. firing off something really irrational, that it doesn't matter that you're right. Like Right, or, or when someone is going to make a decision based on, you know, who they played golf with and not who told the better story in the room, mm-hmm. right? Or when you know that you've got stakeholders that voted for the other technology and they were outvoted, and now you've got to execute the project and win their approval anyway, and they're just looking to say, I told you so, Yep. right? And so there are a lot of situations like that that you have to navigate where building the best software isn't about the, the ones and zeros. You know, I've, I've had people say, well, how could you have any competitive advantage? Someone tells you what software to build and you build it, your competitor would have done the same thing, right? Like you either did or didn't build the right software, sure. right? It turns out that there's 
there's just a lot of gray. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what has been your best investment to date outside of Macedon? And I don't need specific names. Just talk about and, you know, an investment that you've made outside that, that that you thought you know worked out really well for you well i mean there's a time i bought amazon for two dollars a share in 1996 but unfortunately i sold it for about four dollars a share later that year <laughs> i sold a bunch of red hat shares at 19 dollars. <laughs> so <laughs> they they so they sold the ibm at 190 i think yeah, yeah. i think so yeah. they might have split in between i can't remember sure. <laughs> um so we've all had a few of those um you know, there's an interesting set of side businesses that you and I got into mm-hmm. um, over the last couple of decades that I think we're mostly out of now. But mm-hmm. we were both really turned on by real estate during mm-hmm. the, the boom. And there was a time that I, I bought my first townhouse when I was I don't know, 24 or whatever, and it doubled in value in three years, right? When we had a mutual friend, Poya Safa, who did extremely yeah. well with, with just buying townhouses right. in D.C. I bet he has quite a collection at this point. <laughs> I, I've, I always wonder. I see him on Facebook. I, yeah. I, I text with him every couple of years, and, but, uh, but yeah. it's usually after a few of these. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, anyone, anyone that bought and held is fine, right? Yeah. But markets have a funny way of shaking out sure. a lot of money over time. Um, I mean, as far as uh, buying into small companies that no mm-hmm. one's heard of, right? That's probably what you were looking for. Exactly, right? exactly. Uh, not, you know, not, not the, the, not the call options you bought on Merck right, uh, right, right before a drug was approved or yeah. The, the 15 shares of Intel that my parents gave me at high school graduation okay. uh, that turned out. Well. Yeah. Um, you know, I've had a couple that, um, that I think are going to be real home runs. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, you know, they, they both involved you. Um, level your company, mm-hmm. right? When you had that idea really early on, I, again, you know, bet on the jockey. And, you know, I suspect, I mean, well, Level's even bigger than Massanon and started uh, four years ago, four or five years five ago. Five years ago. So we had a five-year head start and you guys are bigger. So the fact that I bought into your company there, I think, was a good move on my part. I, I don't disagree with that. <laughs> Um, But then you and I have a a mutual friend, Matt, who has a a side project where he runs a a restaurant Mm -hmm. chain that, you know, he he was involved in early and he got both of us into pretty early. Um, The restaurant's called Dirt. And, I uh, love it. I, I eat yeah. clean myself, and I, I yeah, actually Jeff I but... Jeff has agreed to do the podcast. We've had trouble oh, awesome. nailing down a time yeah. to do it because he's obviously running a, an explosively growing yes. company. But I went up and visited the uh, the location in DC, and it was awesome to yeah. see. It was. I think they doubled the ticket size, the record ticket in a given day within like three days of opening the yeah. restaurant of what in any of the locations in Florida, which we're already doing very well. So. Right, right. Like when your chain starts in South Beach, you, yeah. you got to think that it's setting records that are going to be hard to break anywhere else, yeah. right? And then the first week, the the DC, yep. you know, store is, is breaking them. And I actually think I went the week after you. And yeah, it, I mean, I think that concept has real legs and that, that definitely could be the next, you know, Sweet, shake Shack sweet green or, or Shake sweet, Shack. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, one of those concepts that, you know, every major city needs a handful of. I agree. And then obviously Grandpad that we talked yeah. about with Scott Lean. You, you were at a position to, to invest. I didn't, and I'm kicking myself now. But. Yeah, I think I was in that early. It might have been the first round. And um, I was at my parents' house for Thanksgiving mm-hmm. and actually saw a Grandpad commercial on, like, CNN or something. Yeah. And I was like, I, I know that. I, I got a piece of that company, right? Scott's like a phenomenal CEO, right? Yeah, yeah. 
It's great. They're yeah. in Target. They're in Best yeah. Buy. Um, I think it might have been a Target, like a commercial that was kind of repping both them and Target over that partnership. Yeah. So what he he talks a lot about this in the podcast. Um, Consumer Cellular picked up on his solution, and all of the cellular companies have really struggled to connect with the greatest generation or those mm-hmm. that are 80, 90, 100 years yeah. old. There's just no compelling reason to, to sell to these folks, or there's no compelling reason for these folks to use the tech. And in right. the podcast, Scott talks about little, little silly things like when you get to 90 years old, you lose the oil in your skin. And yeah, every single touch, the button, every touch button reacts to that oil. And so they had to re-engineer for that. And then yeah. there's just a whole bunch of little things that nobody ever looked at this segment of the population. Right. And to Scott's point, they've got the most disposable income and the most disposable time of any yeah. demographic. Now, the, it, and it's limited. Longer. And they're living longer. So, yeah, it's interesting to me. And it's great to see somebody like that achieve that, that kind of success. Because you could see it in the early going, like, this guy's got a great idea. Yeah. He really understands his market, but it still takes so much luck to get over that finish line. It um, does. And I mean, one of the things I've always loved about that story is mm-hmm. Scott is just so personally invested in that concept, yep. right? I mean, he, he has a chief gerontologist on staff, right? Yep. Which he uh, is the he, title I had ever heard of. At one right? point, his youngest employee was 16 and his oldest was 114. <laughs> 114. <laughs> I wonder if he has any systems that cap people's age at 99. No, they, they, they don't seem to have that. We, he and I were out one night in Newport Beach. And, um, it's a and decent town. Not a bad town. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, and, and we run in. We're at this bar. It's a really fun country dive bar. And um, there's this 90-year-old guy is in there, like, dancing with all these ladies. And Scott knew some of the people who knew him. And instantly scott just like flocked right to this guy and like wanted to talk to him for 20 minutes as buying him drinks yeah like he legitimately loves people of that age and feels like his generation has let them down and i think that that drives a lot of his success because he does actually genuinely care for his customers and that wasn't warren buffett right that was just a random no that was just some random guy wearing a big belt buckle (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome that is so scott Cool. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna again shift gears here a bit and yeah. move, move over to sports because that's something you and I talk about yeah, a lot. Yeah, for sure. We are long suffering Redskin fans. We are, and and we're coming to folks from Dallas, your home in yes. Dallas. Um, first off, what do you think your expectation is for our record next year? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I mean, a lot of that depends on who the quarterback is. But I feel like we've six and ten has kind of been about where we've seven and nine has been my lately. default answer. Yeah. And I feel like <laughs> and this how many year times I... have they underachieved your seven and nine? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very often. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, so, so the draft, I, I didn't follow the draft um, personally, but from what I understand, we didn't embarrass ourselves, which is no. saying a lot. Um, I think it looked very competent. I think we. We, we had about the number 15 pick, and I think there's a player that in previous years we would have traded up to three or four to get, mm-hmm. and we wound up getting him at 15. That's great. And not having to spend any assets to do it. So. Well, here's hopefully hopefully our owner is finally figuring it out. I, yeah. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little wary after the years of, of just awful, awful missing expectations, but... I, well, maybe he's learned by listening to your podcast on how to I'm pivot sure it, while you're he, running a business. He's one of the millions listening, I'm yeah, sure. I'm sure he is. <laughs> what is the worst uh, part about being a Skins fan in Dallas? 
<laughs> I actually, you know, I haven't run into that many issues, oddly enough. Well, um, so to me, so I've spent a lot of time in Dallas, not yeah. as much as you, but 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 I've I've probably spent uh, nine months of my life living here. Yeah, effectively, that's about what I spent before I moved here. Yeah, enough. yeah. Um, for me, the worst part was they don't give a shit about us. Like we, yeah, it's we, a one-way rivalry. We yeah. fixate on Dallas, and they, <laughs> they just couldn't care. give a shit. No, they're know, more but, worried about Philly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I don't blame them. But no. but still, like that that I don't know. That just upsets me. <laughs> I mean, it's it's interesting, right? Because I mean, I I've definitely you know gone to you know Eagles games wearing mm-hmm. my Redskins gear and had stuff thrown at me. And yeah, in Dallas, people just drink a beer with you if you're wearing a Skins jersey. They don't care. Like it, they they don't care. Yeah. It's, kind of cool <laughs> this is is a tough one because there's a lot of candidates all right what's the single biggest mistake of snyder's tenure mm. let's see i can't say buying the team because i suspect he's actually made a lot of money doing it i think that is true um i mean it could be handsworth i, I, it could I feel be... like we need categories here right you could talk about adam archuleta was a nice mistake uh, that yeah. was record setting dana you, stubblefield you've got a couple of coaching hires that were jim Zor- horny for zorny horny for zorny right um, chasing chasing um, Schottenheimer out after one eight and eight season. Yeah, that was good. One. Eight not eight. picking By up the way, Greg that, and Williams. That season started zero and five. Yeah, right, and then got to eight and eight, which yeah. had never been done before. But then Spurrier became available, of which course, worked out well. so well for us. Yes, um, I mean you could look at at drafting success, mm-hmm. right, and trading an entire draft for RG three. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you were to score that one at home, <laughs> um, that probably set us back five years. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Although it did give us one season. We had that one phenomenal year. You, you and I went to that playoff game yep. against Seattle. That, that yeah. was a lot of fun. Um, you're also a big baseball fan. In fact, you yeah. were probably into baseball before before I was. Um, can you comment on football versus baseball for you and kind of how the two have played different roles in your life through the years or how, how, how you've evolved on the way that you view the two? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. My dad was a big baseball guy. I mean, mm-hmm. he grew up in, like, Brooklyn in the 50s, right? So he was into, you know, a scene where I think baseball was, was everything, you know? Um, and then he raised me on it at that point. It was uh, the Phillies, and, and eventually I moved to Atlanta in middle school and was a Braves fan for a while. Um, but... Baseball is very every day, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you literally get like one day off a month, right? And I think that's a really interesting metaphor for what we do in business, right? Mm-hmm. Because you really can't afford to have a bad day, right? You've got to bring your A game, you know, 162 sure. games in a row. And it's interesting, you get to the end of the season and you have teams missing the playoffs by one game, right? You yeah. say, well, over 162 games, how could the other team have been 1% better and kept my team out of the playoffs, <laughs> right? But it happens every year, sure, right? And, and you, could, you could look at any game early in the season and say, oh, if we had just not made a defensive error in that game, we'd be in the playoffs right now. So fighting for every inch yeah. literally matters it does. in the marathon. Right. It, yeah. And it's interesting that, you know, football is only 16 games and sometimes we lose sight of that, mm-hmm. right? And even though, again, you miss the playoffs by one game there, it, it seems like, well, we could say we could have done 30 things better in that game, right? And, and it's almost like one game means less in football, even though it should mean so much more. 
That's very true. Right. Um, The other thing I think is interesting is the preparation, right? In football, you you know your schedule. And going into any game, you have like six days to do nothing but prepare for that opponent, right? And know exactly what offense they run and what, you know, what play they're going to want to run on first down every time and how often they run the ball and who you specifically are matching up against and what all their tendencies are. And you have like a really big amount of time to just prep for that like one individual matchup on that one day. And you still have teams that beat other teams like 50 to seven. Yeah. Usually teams beating our team 50 to seven. And it's interesting how like the, the skill gap somehow seems to overcome that knowledge gap. Well, the other, the other interesting dynamic that I haven't really wrapped my head around is your pitcher changes every game yeah, and you change pitcher within the game and that strategy of playing. But to your point, you've got less time to prepare for that, but that dynamic, you don't even think about in football. You're not like, we're going to have this quarterback at the beginning and then we're going to go here and then we're going to switch to this quarterback. And then depending on where we are, we might go with this quarterback, but then we have to think about, we can't use him tomorrow. (laughs) Right. Yeah. There's no tomorrow in football. Right. And in fact, the thing the defense can best hope to do is get you down to your second quarterback. And there's no doubleheader, right? A doubleheader changes everything. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. Right. Cause you're out of pitchers by the end of that day. Yeah, absolutely. 10 to begin with. Uh, yeah, now it's it's as I get older, baseball becomes a lot more um, a lot more fascinating to me. Just the yeah. dynamics. We only have a minor league team in Charlotte, yeah, but I nice. still really enjoy the games. It's it's a lot of fun yeah. just seeing it. Um, so as, as you're a UVA fan, I think yeah. you mentioned it earlier. My my dad and my brother and my aunt all went to UVA. I yeah. didn't, but I still like to follow UVA from behind. I like to poke holes and talk a little shit every now and again yeah. but i mean at least you got into duke so <laughs> uh which is a sore subject this year um <laughs> but as a uva fan which team are you most excited about <laughs> i mean there's one obvious like one i guess or? well uh, there's an obvious one basketball but like yeah. after basketball like what are you most interested in like which of the teams do you follow the most after the bat and it hasn't always been basketball has it like for no. a while you like football probably seemed like a better path or- yeah i mean it uva has definitely had a lot of ups and downs mm-hmm. um particularly in football when I was there, we were actually really good. It was in kind of the Aaron Brooks era. We went to a Thomas of, Jones was there. Yeah, at the Thomas time. Jones went to some Peach Bowls. Um, yep. You know, we're kind of a top fifteen-ish team, um, but you know, we, we definitely had some lean years since then. Mm-hmm. And then uh, things seem to be heading the right direction. You know, we beat South Carolina in a bowl game last year. Mm-hmm. Um, finished, you know, well above where we were picked in the ACC. Um, I don't think we're going to beat Clemson anytime soon, but. We but that's so good. As an ACC fan, you have to love that there's a yeah, team that dominant. That's not Florida State, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Because <laughs> when we were growing up, it was like, yeah, Florida State's lost, you know, one game in 12 well, years. And, and when we, we all thought when they brought Miami and Virginia Tech in that right. those two teams were going to dominate the, the, the ACC. class of the conference, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think football definitely could, could take a step forward. No love for lacrosse? Even though that's your best team throughout the last 20 years? I feel like we're in the national championship, like, next week in lacrosse or something. You, you but, might be. I haven't looked yeah. this season. But. <laughs> But now basketball will be interesting. Um, you know, I always said none of my teams had ever really won a title in anything until a couple weeks ago. Sure. And then, of course, we lost like our top five players or something. So it'll be my, interesting. My to son see told me year. about that because he told me, he said Duke recharged. And not that they found another Zion because you don't yeah. aren't going to find many Zions. Right. But he said they got three top 10 picks in the year. And he's like, UVA didn't. And I was like, I am going to go out on a limb and say UVA will be better next year than Duke because to me, huh. 
in college basketball, it's all about the coach. And yeah. Tony Bennett clearly, and nothing against Coach K. I just he's 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 an, he's been he's doing it for prime. a very long time. He might be past his prime. I mean, he he, he had four guys um, who at, at different points during the season were talked about as being top ten picks. Yeah, and and yet didn't have one guy who could shoot three point or free throws, <laughs> you know, over 58%. Right. So, and, and, and again, maybe like it's hard to judge because it was a, it was a really fun season and, it was. and we did great, but it's also like not winning. The expectations are so high when you beat a team by 68 points and you beat a number one team by 36 points, you yeah. have a legitimate expectation of, of doing better than we did. But that, that's the reality of college basketball like you lose yeah. once and you're out I mean it's and the interesting thing about basketball to me and you're right the coach is worth a lot but mm -hmm. team chemistry counts for a lot too absolutely you know, you've only got five guys on the court at any one time yep and if, if they're five all-stars or five you know get me the ball guys I mean the Lakers prove every year that that doesn't work right yep. and I think Duke had a little bit of that well and, and Florida State almost beat Duke in the ACC tournament they did yeah, I mean it was beat us and, and they beat you and they, and they play Duke tough every year and this year their approach was so different. Duke had four players that scored 80% of our points yeah. and seven players that scored 100% of our points. Florida State had two starting lineups that they right. would just interchange. Their leading scorer came off the bench. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was, it, was, it was amazing to see, and that's almost harder to deal with. And, and that's why I feel like a Tony Bennett who's at the point in his career where he's you – know, I just feel like he's, he's hit his stride where K might have been 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, I would take the coaching over the the, the recruitment any day, and and yeah. you can look at at UVA. You had um, Al Groh was your coach. Who yeah, could, he had some of the best. You could build some of the best pro teams in the oh, history yeah. of of the NCAA's from UVA players, and they didn't win a bowl game during that time. Right? No. Yeah, we had left tackles going in the top ten like yeah. every draft, and guys like Heath Miller and. Yep. Yeah. Heath Miller, one of the best tight ends right. of all time, redefines the position. And we go like seven and five. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, well, well, so Austin, you were, um, we talked a little bit about the you know role I might have played in your development, but you were also very influential in, in my personal development. And you mentioned you had invested in my Startup Rewards Summit. Um, although we achieved success in uh, customer acquisition and within the Apple ecosystem, and we learned a ton. Um, we weren't making money, and yeah. you encouraged me very early on when it became clear that what we were doing, although we had had success on this measure, we weren't successful on the measure that matters, making money. You encouraged me very on, early on to start a consulting company to pay the bills, and ultimately, um, the success of that business led to us shutting down Reward Summit. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> and you invested in that new company, so yeah. it wasn't wasn't yeah, terrible for you. But one. you're obviously still here, friends with me, and having this interview. <laughs> yeah. So, was there a guiding principle you were thinking about when you gave me that advice? Because again, for folks like you, put some money into a company, you put more money into it, and then you say, well, why don't you go do this because you're better at this even though it might make my investment worth zero. You know, that's a hard piece of advice to give. Um, so, so what was the thought process at that time? I mean, basically I saw I was making money and you weren't, and I just wanted to help you. <laughs> um, well, thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. But, you know, actually some of it was, you know, what I had seen the Appian guys do, and they, um, they had a profitable services business, and mm -hmm. they plowed that money into a product. Mm -hmm. And today, obviously, they're a product company, but they were able to avoid taking capital for a really long time because mm -hmm. the two roughly offset each other 
know? Yeah. And um, I, our problem was there was an imbalance where they didn't offset each other. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, sure. There were a couple of uh, logistical challenges there, but I, yeah. I, I remember you had a lot of great product ideas at the time. And yeah, my kind of goal for you was run a consulting company that's profitable and then use that money to fund all your product ideas. Don't pay any taxes because you have no net profit across the portfolio. Sure. And then you wouldn't need money from me every time. <laughs> so it was self-preservation yeah, at the end of the day. <laughs> so, so that was obviously for, for Chris and me game-changing advice because we, we were very focused on the product. And when I went to Chris, I was like, yeah, I want Austin. Who, you, know, you, you were probably our biggest investor at the time. I was like, Austin was like, just start a consulting company, funnel the profits over here. Not funnel. That sounds yeah. nefarious. Reality, but like yeah. Fund this with that. And, um, and then it just, there was a point where it was like, we, to do what we need to do with this consulting company, we can't do this anymore. And you were very supportive. Scott was very supportive because yeah. he was the other big investor. All the investors were very supportive and we were very lucky. And when I asked Scott about it, what he talked about was just the transparency that we had and the fact that we, we clearly didn't just give up on day one. Like, we're going to try this. We're going to yeah. try that. Like, I think that those are all things that people need to keep in mind. I, I think that your investors will support you as long as you're transparent with them and you explain to them this is what's going on and this is why. And if you have a personal connection. And we were always very careful at Reward Summit and even at NextGrid I was very careful at. I need to talk to my investors regularly. I need to let them know what's going on because if they don't yeah. hear what's going on. And Scott talked about an investment he had made where you know, the minute he wires the money, he doesn't hear anything. <laughs> and then the next thing he hears is 18 months later, we're shutting the company down. I've had a few of those, yeah. <laughs> so, very interesting. So, so what in, uh, obviously Appian caught your imagination very early. What in the technology world except, excites you the most these days? Is there anything you've got your eye on? Or are you so busy with Appian that you're not really look, looking around at what's going on? Yeah, I mean, I've kind of been heads down lately. Um, mm -hmm. I think the biggest trend out there is, is just disintermediation, right? Mm -hmm. For centuries, things were kind of done the same way. And like the major innovation of any given decade would be like, we can store food in a can now, right? <laughs> and now we live in an age where like in any given month, a 200 year old industry can be turned on its head by an app that like some kid built in his basement, mm -hmm. right? And like, if you fast forward 10 years and dozens or hundreds of industries have been turned on their head, right? What does the world look like once that's happened, right? And there are, there are sure. a, lot of, a lot of implications, right? Are there a lot of companies that now need a lot less employees because, well, either robots are doing their job or the equivalent, right? Like mm -hmm. travel agent's job just doesn't exist anymore, right? Yeah. And what's the next industry like that, right? Blockbuster cashier's job doesn't exist anymore, right? Sure. Um, it's interesting if you just play it forward and you say, well, what, what percentage of like brick and mortar could we afford to get rid of before we would feel the impact in some other way? Right? I don't know the answer to that. And I suspect by, you know, a hundred years from now, the answer is going to be, we got rid of all of it, but what the path looks like from here to there from kind of a macro Well, I think a hundred years from now, none of the jobs that exist today will exist. Yeah, pretty much. But, but you couldn't have said that in previous centuries, right? Like you always needed dudes to run trains and But it was whatever. probably fairly accurate because there were a hundred years before trains were invented, nobody even knew what a train was. So you right. couldn't have predicted that there was a train <laughs> operator. Right. right. Well, and there weren't cars either. So you didn't have things like roads. You just yeah. have horses. Well, and, or... and even 10 years ago, there was no such thing as a social media specialist. Right. 
and right. there is now. Now that's so. actually a highly paid job. It's a highly paid job. And if, if you find one that's good, you keep yeah. them. So interesting. What keeps you awake at night about the macro economy right now? That I don't have anything specific to put my finger on, right? Mm-hmm. Other than like trade war, we're yeah. living in an era of like no unemployment, relatively low interest rates, mm-hmm. um, things like the, well, the trade balance, you know, in, improving over where they've been in previous decades, mm-hmm. a stock market that is usually making new highs if it's not taking a couple month pause. Um, something's got to be wrong somewhere that we don't know about beyond just, you know, what we're importing from China on a daily basis. Gotcha. And it's, it kind of feels like a 1987 moment, right? Where no one can kind of put their finger on why we don't know where crashed. The, yeah, we don't know where the black swan's coming. Yeah. But we, we know that something's coming. Well, it's just been too long since we've had one, sure. right? Absolutely. So what programming language are you going to suggest to your daughters to learn? Or has Peyton already fired up a compiler? <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> um, you know, I've always liked C++. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't recommend building anything in it. But if you're going to learn something, I like that you can learn all the object-oriented concepts, but you still need to learn how memory actually works. I think I see a lot of kids come out of school these days with a Java background that were just brought up in a world where you can assume you have unlimited resources mm-hmm. and therefore write code that you know is, we'll, we'll say, inefficient. Interesting. That was the last answer I expected. I don't disagree with it. But <laughs> so, so basically what you're saying is learn a language that lets you learn more about the programming. Yeah, you need to know kind of what a computer does and how a language mm-hmm. takes advantage of that to then learn the next language and see its pitfalls. So, so I asked um, Derek Wang, the founder of Stratified, a, a very successful machine learning company yeah. in Charlotte, and uh, it was Python immediately. <laughs> yeah. But of I, course, that's his... You know. Python is very productive. If you're going to actually do something with it, that's a great language. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny. I, um, I, I'm with you. I think your answer more represents my thought, which is I don't care what you learn. Just learn something. Yeah, know? well, the, everyone the, should know. The, the only counterargument yeah. to C++ might be you don't really learn the HTTP request response mechanism, which is really important. Yeah. So, but, but if you can learn C++, you can learn anything. Right. right. Like if you can dodge a wrench. Um. <laughs> yes, you can dodge a ball. <laughs> so... Going back to Appian, you were obviously very close to that success story. Yeah. Um, and, and you've been successful on your own, but they've achieved just a different trajectory. Oh, yeah. um, what have you taken away from your relationship with Matt? Was there a moment in your mind where they made a decision that could have gone badly, but turned out to be like, this is what took off and this is what made them who they are today? Um, I mean, there, there are tons of those. And mm-hmm. I actually once had lunch with Matt and said, you know, this is awesome. You're Joe Montana and I'm a yeah. high school quarterback and I get to have lunch with you every now and then. Right? <laughs> um, but I think um, the cool thing about business is it, it's ever changing, right? And mm-hmm. Matt's a big board game guy and he's actually published games and won competitions. And he says, like, he never plays the same board game twice because he always wants to do something new and different. And that's how business is. You don't get to just run the same play until mm-hmm. the, the defense stops it the way, you know, football teams used to run jet sweep yep. or whatever, right? Or me in Tech Mobile. Yeah, right. <laughs> one, oh, no, 10-yard fight was the one where you ran a certain direction and you just... Yeah, quarterback sneak. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no, but that's, that's great advice. You yeah, know? and, you know, I, I've seen him have to pivot through, well, literally pivot a couple of times, right, from a services company to a portal company to a BPM company mm-hmm. to a, you know, they've really 
kind of crossed from BPM into this broader digital transformation and low code concept at this point. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for a couple of those pivots, I was there as an Appian employee and for a couple of, you know, been at Macedon and seen how Matt adapts to an ever changing market. And I think, um, you know, kind of getting back to those companies that get disintermediated left and right, mm -hmm. being able to see, you know, the dark clouds on the horizon and get out in front of it um, was something Matt was always great at. Um, That's great. You know, the, early on, I think everyone else in the space made their development environment uh, in Eclipse, which is a very, you know, developer oriented world. And mm -hmm. Matt said, no, at some point we're going to need, you know, end web users based, to yeah. be able to, to do the visual parts. And Appian was the only one that was web based. And then that turned out to have all sorts of positive side effects, right? Like if you're on a computer that's inside corporate headquarters, you're not administrator of your own box and you can't install anything, but guess what? You can hit our website. Wow. <laughs> well, you know that that was, um, not to change the subject, but that was how Hotmail became a success. Yeah. They were actually, the web now. Yeah. Well, they were, and they were working on a different thing. They had built a different thing that that company had created, but to collaborate, they couldn't collaborate because they couldn't install any desktop software yeah. and they needed to do email. So they created Hotmail and their VC was like, no, no, this is the product. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think they got 400 million from Microsoft or something. Yeah. Four or 500 million, <laughs> something amazing. And yeah. in a very short, I mean, it, I, I want to say it was like 19, 20 months. Yeah. Like it's unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. R really interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, so you've had very big success in services. Um, Services focused on a product, but still services. Yeah. Um, Appian started out in services, made the jump to product, and obviously had just insane levels of success. Do you think you'll ever create a product company, or are services your bread and butter for the long run? How do you think about the two? No, long run is definitely product. Okay. Um, I think that's where you always have to go to have you know the biggest impact on the mm -hmm. world. Um, Services have been fun and I've learned a lot and, and obviously, you know, there's money to be made and we do great things. Um, but you'll never get the kind of scale out of a services company that you get out of a product. And scale is obviously how you have the most impact. Can the two coexist or? Um, yeah, you know, you have a lot of companies that produce a product and then do services with it, right? Oracle is famous for having made a lot of money that way. Um, and this is particularly true in like the enterprise software space, mm -hmm. right? Where products aren't the kind of thing you just like turn on and use the way like consumer electronics are, right? Like there are no services for a Blu-ray player other than, you know, come fix mine if it broke. If <laughs> anyone uses Blu-ray Blu players anymore. I never bought one. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I literally went straight from DVD to... Just stream. To, yeah, but not even streaming. Originally, I, I did buy like uh, the old Apple TV that had a hard drive yeah. on it, and you could actually buy all of the digital uh, downloads right. on iTunes. But never, never had the, uh, the 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 Blu-ray, and they were competing with HD DVD at the yeah. time, which was an interesting one where everybody thought this was another VHS and beta, and it was like, no, this is different. Nobody gives a shit about either of these standards. Right. <laughs> <laughs> They'll both be out of business in five years. They're both gone. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Again, because technology just moves so much faster now. Right? Way, way too fast. Yeah, it's hard for the rest of the world to, not the rest of the world, but the rest other industries to catch up with. Yeah. With tech, it just moves at a pace that's impossible to keep up right. with if you're not a tech company. Well, which is why every company out there needs to become a tech company, right? Yeah. They need to embrace it. Well, do you think they can become a tech company? Do you think every company can be a tech company? 
it's interesting, you know, um, a long time ago at Amentra, mm-hmm. Geico was one of our biggest clients, right? And like, if you boil down what Geico is, it's a database and a rules engine okay. with a website in front of it. And great commercials. Yeah. But ultimately, like, if any company is a tech company, I would say it's Geico. Okay. But obviously insurance is one of those, like, several hundred-year-old industries that never changes, right? Yeah. Like, if, if you were to argue any company is not a tech company, insurance might be where you started. Yep. Right? And so I think there are a lot of companies out there that either proactively chose a business model around technology or are going to get forced into that when someone becomes Netflix to their Blockbuster, right? Blockbuster could have become a tech company, but it didn't. Yeah. And I read a really interesting article because Blockbuster wasn't necessarily as black and white as everybody assumes it was. It wasn't just one bad decision. It was, there, was a, there were a series of decisions that were made and things that happened where they could have done things, but they made what at the time was a logical local decision, but globally it was a very bad yeah. decision. And we all like to think that we're above that, but I don't know if Mark Zuckerberg or Reed Hoffman is running Blockbuster <laughs> If, yeah. if they're able to fix it because there's just so much technical debt, there's so much legacy, there's, you know. It's... I don't know. It, it's interesting because I do hear that argument a lot, right? But then you see guys like Jeff Bezos who, mm. who basically started a bookstore and said, let's put a website in front of it, right? Sure. But then eventually said, well, we need to build the biggest data center in the world, so let's build two yeah. and invented the cloud. No, and, right? and I agree. But what <laughs> if you were, what if you were, what if Bezos instead had been hired to run Barnes & Noble? Well, and they've, they've actually come out to a halfway decent but let's say he was hired to run borders, borders? i yeah. forgot did you build borders website we we <laughs> built some bnn we built bnn.com at my old the, the first company i went to work for but let, but let's just say borders jeff bezos runs it can he fix that so at some point you got to get out all your leases and close all your stores right oh, yeah or or yeah you've just you've got all of this debt that you can't just walk yeah. away from you've got employees and you've got lives and you've got wives and children and yeah you know like you can't necessarily and those people couldn't be running amazon warehouses no, no like you can't get there right yeah. away so it's and again i don't know the answer to it but i just right. think that that's a, a fascinating question yeah is, is like can a person make the same change inside of a big company as they do on their own i've met people who have made fantastic changes inside of a big company um, I talked to Scott Lean a lot about Bank of America and kind of what they were working yeah. with. And it's, you're reaching a quarter of the households in all of America. Like an innovator can be way more innovative in that environment if they can navigate the bureaucracy and, and handle everything. Yeah. Um, but, it, but there's still some inertia that just stops you in those environments typically because you typically don't see the, the, the big... Um, you know, innovations happening there. Although I say that, and then I don't know if you've been following Zelle at all. Yeah, Zelle is so, great. I use it actually. I, I use it a lot because, especially with like people from my parents' generation. Yeah, I pay my or, landscaper on Zelle. Or even my own generation because they, I'm like, do you have Bank of America or Wells Fargo or Citi or <laughs> right. JP Morgan? Probably. Right. <laughs> then no, we can move money. And, yeah. But yeah, exactly. I mean, I prefer Venmo. It's a much easier to use experience. Yeah. But, but Zelle is, to me, is an example of a big industry punching back and saying we're going to leverage yeah. all of this scale that we've got and, and and I think that's going I think a big part of the next 10 years in technology is going to be how do you help these companies punch back who yeah. who have historically been just sitting back and getting punched and like okay we still have enough of our core business 
but the core business in many cases is is going away and if they don't innovate they are going to be consigned to the dust heap that yeah. that blockbuster found themselves on that's really interesting there have got to be case studies out there of giant companies that have pivoted right like yeah. i can think of a few tech companies Apple getting into all the things that are not Macs yeah. at some point, right? And then making Mac awesome, too. Right. <laughs> yeah, as a side effect, right? Yeah, yeah. Or uh, Microsoft realizing the browser was the future of platform and not the operating system and saying we need an all-online strategy. Sure. Right? But outside of technology, n- nothing comes to mind yeah. Probably because of a lot of that legacy. I mean, I guess I don't know. But a that'd lot be an of, interesting case study to go look up the ten best pivots of. of I don't big know a lot about 3M, right? but I think because of the nature of 3M's business, they're inventing new products all the time. They're always inventing yeah. new products, so I think there are examples. And I bet that um, who's the author who wrote uh, Jim, Jim Collins? Jim Collins. That's yeah. it. I, I bet that that probably should be the next book that's written. Is just how do companies completely reinvent themselves not good right. to great not built to last but like how do something i something different pivot yeah yeah yeah, so, yeah exactly so, well that's interesting so austin this this has been great yeah um, it's you know we're we're coming up on a, an hour and 40 minutes here wow um so you mentioned earlier you drive a lamborghini yeah <laughs> an old one but yes uh, my favorite story you told me was you used to have an e-class mercedes yeah. that's faster than than the Lambo and much easier to drive, much safer. All of the above. Yes. (laughs) Cheaper in the shop. Less. Yeah. All of those things. (laughs) Any thoughts you have on the next exotic you're going to buy or the next sedan, or are you uh, going to stay on this SUV train? You mentioned that you have the, the, uh, the, the the SUV currently. So what are your thoughts there? Well, I do have kids and I needed something kind of practical to, Mm -hmm balance out Maserati is always practical of course yes yes Um, (laughs) I actually well I tried to get a Mercedes SUV and they lost my order which led to a fiasco which one uh I was gonna get an E40 not an E GLE GLE 43 okay yeah and then they lost my order so Chris has the GLE 43 coupe which is just a sick 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 crossover it Um, is I was was it the crossover you were gonna get the sedan okay yeah Yeah. again because I wanted something, you know, more functional. Yep. Um, but yeah, they, they lost my order and wouldn't extend my lease. And I basically had to give up on the brand. So, now so you never I'm coming back. You know, well, I mean, someday I might, but uh, it was, it just wasn't a great experience for, you know, for what you expect from that brand. Right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, there's so much to the brand of the car that is not it, like, even to me, it's like the coffee that they serve in the service yeah. center, the, you know, there, there, there's so much to it, and that's disappointing from a great brand. I had a very disappointing experience with BMW. I remember you telling me that. Yes, yeah, so, 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 some trouble or something. So, so I'm a BMW guy. Like, yeah. There's no doubt. I'm a BMW and Porsche guy. Like that is what I identify with. Yeah. But at some point along the line, I realized that I wanted an AMG, and and so I went to AMG. But for a long time, all I wanted was BMW. Yeah. And so I had the V10, um, 2008 M5, and it was. It was, it was a beast. It was, it was, uh, amazing sounding. It was fast, but it, it, the the gas mileage sucked. The reliability was very poor. Yeah. And I knew I wanted a new car and they came out with the twin turbo V8, which was literally (laughs) 50% better gas mileage and maybe 10% better horsepower. Yeah. Just tough to beat faster. Yeah. Yeah. So I order one and then my, my old M5 just 
the the check engine light comes on and I go to my dealer and he's like, look, we, you need a, a new motor. It's thirty thousand dollars. And I was like, Jesus. So I yeah. write letters to BMW. I'm like, you stand behind your product. This right. is ridiculous. This isn't like a four year old car or something. This was a little older than that. This might have been six years old. Yeah. I was traveling a lot, so I just didn't drive a lot. Right. You know? So I had I, it was a six or seven year old car with like thirty two thousand miles yeah. on it. Yeah. You know, and um. And I canceled the order for the new one. I'd already ordered the new V8, and I, I canceled it. I wrote a letter, and they finally got back to me and were like, yeah, we'll do this for $2,500. We'll give you a brand-new engine. And, um, cool. So I had to pay for the labor, and I did it. And, and I bought the new car, but at that point, I was like, I'm going to explore something new. Yeah. And for me, like I realized that AMG and Mercedes are two completely different brands. They and, are. And, and it's, you know what amg represents to me is the best of both worlds like yeah. extreme like we're i'm getting after it um but still at the same time like the ultimate in comfort and security because the m's were never comfortable cars they were never right but you get you get in you get in the uh, amg and it's like yes this car will snap your neck and it will sound <laughs> awesome doing it right. and i knew when i went to the to the bmw dealer to drop off the second m5 and they were like what'd you get and i'm like yeah, i got a amg s class yeah and they were like you know what like they get the sound right in a way that we just can't even compare with it <laughs> and and it is like when you downshift in yeah in an amg as you did in your e63 oh, that was like, the best engine i ever had yeah it backfires and it it's does like, literally. <laughs> yeah so in a good way yeah yeah exactly <laughs> no no it's, it's 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 in a great way well well look austin i really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to me again. I think my yeah. audience really likes to hear from people like yourself who probably have been growing through their career and are trying to figure out, do I, do I really double down on this corporate career or do I go, you know, do something else? And so yeah. I think your story is going to inspire a lot of people. So have I missed anything? Is there anything we should talk about at this point? Um, I think you got all the highlights. Yeah. Cool. It's, it's been a wild ride. Cool. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, Austin. You're welcome. We'll, we'll talk again soon. I already have written down a few notes on a couple things I want to talk about on the next interview. So cool. cheers to that one. All right. Hit me up. All right. Take care. Yep.